Welcome to this podcast series produced by the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee of the University of Edinburgh in collaboration with Teaching Matters. We will hear from different academics at the university talking about what decolonizing the curriculum means for them and how they have put this into practice in their learning and teaching or research. They also share some findings and readings they have found useful. The hope is that the podcast will provide ideas, stimulate thinking and dialogue, as well as building a network of academics in the university who are interested and engaged in offering an anti-racist, a decolonized and inclusive curriculum. If you're interested in contributing a podcast to this series, please get in touch with Emily Senna or Johanna Halton, co-conveners of the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee. To get in touch with Emily, email her at emily.senna at ed.ac.uk and to contact Johanna, email johanna.halton at ed.ac.uk. Thank you for listening. Can I ask you, um, Julie, to start by a brief introduction of who you are and the work you do? So um, my name's Julie Couples. I'm a um, professor of human geography and cultural studies here at the University of Edinburgh. So um, I've been at Edinburgh for just over um, eight years. Uh, before that, I uh, lived and worked for quite a long time in um, Aotearoa, uh, New Zealand. Um, I do most of my uh, research in, in Latin America, um, especially in uh, Nicaragua, but also Guatemala, uh, Costa Rica, Mexico, and also Colombia and the um, San Andres um, archipelago. Um, and while I was an undergrad student, I got very interested um, in Latin American politics. I was doing modern languages, studying Spanish, got interested in Latin America. Um, and I kind of, and, you know, in Latin America gave me kind of a very, um, intense early political education. So it was the 1980s, uh, Reagan was in power, um, and I became very inspired by by the Nicaraguan Revolution and the way in which it had stood up to uh, to US in, in imperialism. So I really liked its kind of anti-imperialist uh, politics. Um, and so I went to Nicaragua in first time in 1990. Um, I became completely hooked on the place. I thought it was one of the most politically interesting places ever in the entire world. And um, and I've been working there ever since, so kind of more, more than 30 years. Um, and so I started off being very interested in, in, you know, in gender and revolutionary politics. I did my PhD there. But I, lear- I also learned that the kind of a revolution betrayed its own principles in lots of ways because it was driven very much by a colonizing politic. Um, I went to Guatemala, first of all, in, in 1991, and I went to a place called Santiago Atitlan, where the villagers there had got completely tired. This was in the middle of a civil war. The villagers had got completely tired of the army massacres and the intimidation, and they'd thrown out the army with machetes and, and stones. Um, I was in I was in Chiapas in Mexico in in 1994 about uh, 1993 sorry six months before the Zapatista rebellion um, and my then partner was a freelance journalist and you know the, the army just discovered these guerrilla training camps in the jungle and so we kind of broke the story of the Zapatista rebellion um, to to the BBC. And then yeah then I I moved to New Zealand um, just after that so I mean it was. 
it was an interesting time. I lived in New Zealand for almost 20 years, um, and it was a, time, a very interesting time politically uh, to be there. So a time of uh, political revindication for Maori, for kind of, you know, addressing the violations of, of a treaty of, of Waitangi. And the New Zealand University have been challenged in really interesting ways by both um, Maori staff and students. So students really addressing how it was a colonial institution that didn't validate or represent their own worldviews. Um, or, you know, I saw how, you know, Maori academics would get turned down for, for jobs because they disseminated their research not in top ranking academic journals, but did so through, you know, Marae, Maori meeting houses or Maori academics that, you know, would never get promoted because they refused to engage in the act of self-promotion, which was anathema to them. So all of these kind of, there were all these sort of decolonizing pressures um, on the university that I, that, I, that I lived through. So I guess, I guess kind of I've had a lot of um, quite interesting experiences which have made me reflect on. Julie, that's a heck of a lot of life experience in very many different contexts, which has enabled you to, I think, really grapple with the idea of decolonization and what decolonizing means for an academic. So what does it mean for you? Well, that's, I mean, it's a big question, but I think it's also quite straightforward. I mean, I think it means a number of things. I think, first of all, it uh, decolonization involves a recognition that colonialism has not ended. It didn't end with uh, formal um, independence. So colonial attitudes, colonial systems of, of governance and justice and colonial ways of knowing are still um, very much with us. Uh, and they have social effects and they, they result, at, you know, worst in the premature death of, of racialized peoples. It also means understanding that there was nothing positive or benign about colonialism. Colonialism means genocide, dispossession, racism, epistemicide, the killing of knowledges, ecocide. And so decolonization means reversing these trends. It means returning stolen lands. It means abolishing uh, the carceral and judicial system that's built on racism. It means bringing an end to the criminalization and assassination of black and in indigenous human rights and environmental defenders. Um, it means bringing an end to the forms of extractivism and, and financialization in the world that, that bring about um, harm. Um, so, and it means kind of a recognition of, I mean, really of, of humanity, the humanity of, of the excluded other. So it means this recognition of humanity, but also a decentering of the human as well, you know, acknowledging the, the right to life of, of also of non-human beings. I think it also means kind of understanding how various forms of oppression which exist in the world, um, not just coloniality or colonialism, but capitalism, patriarchy, homophobia, uh, transphobia are all part of this same system, uh, you know, the so-called colonial uh, matrix uh, of power, and that these processes are not separate or parallel processes, but they, they're entangled, they mutually uh, constitute one another. Um, so all capitalism, as Cedric Robertson said, is, is racial um, capitalism. And I don't think we can deal with things, you know, global challenges um, like climate collapse, or socioeconomic inequalities unless we recognize the kind of mutual entanglement of these these different processes and i think finally decolonization means um putting an end to epistemic violence you know putting an end to the idea that uh that non-eurocentric knowledges so what boaventura de santos calls the epistemologies of the south are inferior and of course that has 
very serious implications for westernized universities uh, such as such as Edinburgh that are still essentially colonial and, and, and monocultural institutions and actually exacerbate uh, coloniality um, you know through the ways in, in which they operate. So I guess those are some of the things I think that decolonization means. I guess there are probably many more. I don't think so actually. I think you've probably covered every aspect <laughs> of uh, decolonizing and and gave them lots of examples as well at the same time. I wonder if I could take you to thinking about it in terms of your own learning and teaching and your own research, um, because listeners to this podcast will be interested in it. OK, I can go and do that kind of background reading and I can learn about it. But it would be useful to have a few ideas, examples of how, for example, colleagues are taking this forward in practice. Well, so what I, I mean, in my teaching, um, I, I talk to students about how um, often in often when you know when they're given a curricula or the courses that they're taking um, they're often told that they're going to be encouraged to uh, think critically like that's often said or or that they uh, need to engage with a range of different perspectives what often happens though with a lot of courses is that the different perspectives students get all exist within a single episteme. So they all exist within Eurocentrism. OK, so they're Eurocentric critiques of Eurocentrism. And and, you know, what disturbs me is that many students can go through their entire degrees without realising that there are different epistemologies in the world and that they're only being exposed to one. Um, so, so I encourage them to reflect on that. I mean, it's and to recognise just how difficult it is. I mean, we are so shaped by our own training and the and the education and, and a lot of the things that were that we take for granted in in terms of how we how we approach knowledge. Um, so it's about, of course, it means reading people who think from a different epistemic location. So it's it is reading some of the work of decolonial thinkers, particularly black and indigenous um, intellectuals, um, and to try and think with those intellectuals and what it means. So it means kind of it means being often quite profoundly challenged. It's and it is very difficult. Um, and I think one of the things as well, it means like you do have to, um, I mean, obviously my courses, are, I try to make them very multivocal, but I also recognize that you have to take sides, you know, I'm not going to give equal weight to, um, you know, a young female Mayan guerrilla fighter as I would to, you know, the head of a World Bank, you know, like we need to listen to different voices and and think about the way they kind of their worldviews and how they imagine the world and how the world should be. Um, but it is about taking sides. So it's abandoning any pretensions of objectivity that, you know, that these courses are embedded in in a, in the pursuit of social justice. And you have to be committed to that to to, to really make it to make it work. Um, and then, of course, it is also about um, learning, you know, um, about different parts of a world where th things are being done differently. So it's to kind of to see particularly the global south um, or the kind of sometimes what gets called the fourth world, indigenous worlds, um, as, as places in which things are done differently and from which we can learn. Um, and so, very, you know, it's I mean, I think, you know, like Latin America, the material I have is absolutely wonderful. I mean, Latin America is the site of some of the world's most horrendous human rights atrocities, but also the site of some of the world's most fascinating political struggles. And, you know, and it actually encourages us to reflect on how we organize our politics, our modes of governance, our universities. So so to, to, to get into kind of, for example, things like Zapatista thinking and, you know, how does the, how how could we learn from this um, to, you know, to create a, a, a better world? 
Um, so that's kind of, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I try to articulate the difference between a Eurocentric approach and a decolonial approach. So that students, you know, I mean, and, it, and this can be difficult, like the ontological challenge is very difficult, you know, so for a lot of indigenous peoples, you know, um, things that we might think of as environmental resources, you know, lakes or rivers or, you know, volcanoes, mountains, you know, a sentient, agentic beings that can think and feel and act politically. Um, but once students begin to engage with that mode of thinking, it becomes very, very powerful. Um, and it actually offers a way forward to deal with the things, you know, that motivate students in the first place, concerns about environmental destruction. You know, that's what brings a lot of students to, to geography in the School of Geosciences. Um, and then to recognise that, you know, Eurocentric thought, you know, environmental management or environmental science that divides the world up into these binaries is not helping us address the profound challenges that, that we face. So it's it's about learning, thinking with indigenous peoples for example and learning from those struggles i think when i'm hearing you speak uh, you know the the thing about the whole of the whole exercise of decolonization of course is political and this not taking sides is, is key um, i also thought of sir spivak's comment about the subaltian speaking so uh, i think you've captured so much but actually as a researcher i know that you you're, you do a huge amount of research as well and when you talked about taking sides and all that i did wonder there's a lot of talk about decolonizing learning and teaching less so on decolonizing research and i did wonder i mean i'm pouncing this on you but i wonder whether you had any few things you might want to say about that um yeah i mean i think the way in which the contemporary universities organized kind of works against decolonizing research i mean i think the first thing is it's it's a long-term commitment so i mean we have to you know we have to try not and be extractivist in our research practices so you know this is you know short-term field work you know in a site that you're not familiar with uh, where you kind of extract data and then go home and write it up, that doesn't work. So it is about kind of long-term commitment in particular parts of the world, building up relationships over many years. And I think all of the research that I've done has always come from the ground up, you know. I mean, I went to Nicaragua interest, you know, in, in a kind of in the spirit of political solidarity um, and got to know people there. And it's the people I've worked with who've always given me my research themes and what to do next, you know. There was a moment, you know, a few years ago and I was feeling really burnt out, but it was like there was so much to do. And it was, and so it's a it's a kind of partnership. And I, and it's um, you know, it's 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 kind of thinking, you know, being quite humble in terms of what you can do as an academic, you know, like I'm very, you know, this is one of the problems with, you know, the kind of the impact agenda or the ref impact case study where you have to show how your research has made a difference. We all want our research to make a difference, but I'm very aware that the, the making a difference is being done by the activists with whom I work. Right. It's, it's, it's their work that's making a difference. So I'm there in solidarity. And of course, I can do some things that they don't do, for example, theorize or publish in, in academic journals, bring their struggles to, to different audiences. So it's a small grain of sand to what is a much broader and, and, and long term struggle. Um, so all of yeah, so I guess gener generating research from the ground up, long term working, you know, working with. I'm not doing research on or about. I'm working with these, with um, the, the the people I work with, the media makers and and the activists. Um, and uh, you know, I do things, for example, like you know, like sharing 
you know, research findings in advance of publication. Um, you know, one of the one of the partnerships is is a um, in Maori television in in New Zealand, so Indigenous television channel. Um, and we had an agreement that because they've been so badly harmed by colonial researchers that always want to kind of do Maori down and, and you know present Maori, the Maori world as dysfunctional. Um, that you know, it was very important that we didn't publish anything without their agreement. So we've got this memorandum of understanding, and um, and we share it with them, and they have the right to say we don't want you to say this. And you know, and I remember um, you know moving from New Zealand to Edinburgh and kind of sharing this memorandum of understanding with someone you know at this university, and they say, "Are you sure that you're happy with these publishing agreements?" And we said, "Absolutely." You know, we're not we're not in the business of doing harm. So this you know it means sometimes you have research findings that you will never publish because it just wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be a good idea a good idea to do so um and i mean like the other thing as well is i've got a long-term partnership with um with a university in nicaragua an intercultural university or um and that that has been fantastic so there is a, an mou signed between Uracan and the university of edinburgh um, and this was a university that was created by black and indigenous intellectuals on the coast for black and indigenous students that were going to the Pacific part of Nicaragua to go to university, suffering racism and discrimination and not being able to finish their degrees. So this is a university that, you know, that's organized very differently. Um, and so that's also been a kind of interesting kind of partnership and a source of research and and helps me to reflect on, you know, the ways, you know, they, they combine um, spiritual knowledges and science without any trouble. They don't see spirituality and science as somehow incompatible. So, so it's it's those kind of things which I think I you know I kind of try to try to take on board um, with all the challenges of you know not being able to be in the field necessarily for very long and all of those kind of things. But yeah, but long long term relationships. Can I move on to the final part of the podcast, which is to ask you, and you could obviously you should be including yourself in this, writers who you found useful, uh, people or books or articles that you've read that you'd like to share with the listener? Well, I think if um, a really good uh, starting point, if you've, if you've not read anything at all, I would encourage everyone to read Linda Tui Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies. It's an absolutely wonderful book. It's been hugely influential, um, but it, you know, I think it's got something there for for all of us to reflect on our own uh, research practices and how we enact kind of more equitable um, uh, partnerships. I think there are, I mean, there are a number of, um, apart from that, a number of really um, wonderful scholars. I mean, there are some within the MCD framework, the modernity, coloniality, decoloniality framework. So I've done uh, quite a lot of work with uh, Ramon Gross-Fogwell. He came to Edinburgh uh, about five years ago. We had an amazing, really, really amazing uh, workshop. And um, a lot of people came from all around the world to be part of that. And so we did a, we did an edited collection um together so that's that's something that yeah that i definitely recommend um i mean in terms of uh nicaraguan scholars uh juliet hooker a black creole um professor of political science so she's from nicaragua very, very good in terms of her work thinking about uh, black and indigenous identities on the caribbean coast but also her more recent work thinking about the ways in which uh, black knowledges travel throughout the Americas between the US and, and Central America. Um, there's a there's a, a, a Mayan Kiche um, 
um, researcher called Gladys Tulsul, whose work is also really wonderful, particularly thinking about gender and extractivism and the civil war and the, uh, the Guatemalan uh, context. Um, and also, you know, I mean, I also really love um, the work of Boaventura de Sousa Santos, who kind of proves that you don't have to be black or indigenous to be a decolonial thinker. This is a, a white man from Portugal, um, you know, whose, whose work is also really, really wonderful and really uh, thought provoking. Um, so those are some of them. I mean, in terms of Maori scholars as well, um, if you're interested in kind of the coloniality of a justice system, Moana Jackson is also absolutely wonderful. I mean, his writings, but also his kind of media appearances, you know, are always very, very, very insightful. <laughs>